Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you. Thank you for the kindness of the introduction, and thank you for the honor of the invitation. I was here uh, 12 years ago in Abu Dhabi, and obviously this campus did not exist. So I congratulate you on this. And I shudder to think what things will look like here if I don't come back again for another 12 years. It's pretty remarkable. So that's very uplifting. Uh, I'm going to leave the stage, so to speak, if that's okay. It, um, uh, Stalin had uh, uh, arthritis, a kind of rheumatic uh, problem. And for him, he had to pace which helped reduce uh, some of the pain. Uh, he also had a, uh, he had been hit by a horse-drawn buggy when he was young, so he couldn't really walk properly. He had to swing his hip, his right hip around, in order to walk. And so there's no footage of Stalin uh, walking or moving uh, extant in any Soviet archive. It was forbidden uh, to film it. There are only a few tiny clips of him in um, uh, Potsdam uh, where they show him walking very slowly. And so you can see the, the hip movement. When he was in his office, especially when he was agitated, he was always up. Uh, there was in his working office, he had two offices. Uh, his working office in the Kremlin had a very big uh, table, sat about 20 or so big piece of felt on the top of it. His seat was not the head of the table, but the first seat on the side of the table. But he was rarely ever sitting in it. Uh, Everyone else was seated, uh, but he paced. And he would do his pacing. Sometimes he would stop right in front of somebody's face. Uh, Sometimes he would stop not in front of their face, but right behind them. And of course, they would uh, have to continue speaking or not moving while he was standing behind them. It was unnerving for them. It was just a common practice for him. I don't necessarily think he was trying to do something with these movements or with standing or stopping in front of people or behind them. It was just something he developed. So since I started writing this book, I've begun to pace. I'm going to pace a little bit today. I know they're filming this on camera, and I'm causing them great difficulty. But that's not intentional. And anyway... We'll see whether it's worthwhile, all the filming efforts that they're undertaking. So a 906-page text is difficult to deliver in a 45-minute talk, and I'm not going to try to do that. You'll be relieved that I won't try to do that. So instead, I'm going to present a few episodes uh, from the book, which I consider interesting, and we'll see if you share that view when I'm done. Uh, But any question is open for discussion if I don't mention it in this uh, short presentation. So if you want to talk about how Stalin managed the culture, if you want to talk about the collectivization of agriculture, if you want to talk about the terror, the mass terror of 1936-38, or if you just want to ask personal questions about what type of person he was, well, I'm not going to speak to those issues Uh, here in the presentation, but once again, for the Q&A period, any of that and more. So now I'm just going to talk a little bit about the geopolitical aspect of the book and the argument in the book. First, let me set the stage uh, before I get into the book, and then let me deliver a few pieces of this from the book, and then we'll do the Q&A. So there is um, a big story in world history which has to do with the uh, rise of British power. The British and the French fought about a hundred years war, more or less, for supremacy, and the British won. This was very unexpected that the British won. The victory of the British was sort of symbolized by uh, the defeat of Napoleon, especially the second defeat of Napoleon. So by 1815, 
you have a clearly British-dominated world. The British then go on to form a global economy, which is pretty remarkable. A global trade, first globalization. Uh, pound sterling is the uh, more than 90% of um, uh, reserve currency in, in global transactions. The British lay the cables under the sea. They're responsible for the global communications. And we could give other examples of the British dominate the nature of the British dominated world. Uh, but then a, a few things happen: eruptions in this British dominated world. One is the Bismarck's unification of Germany, which is how uh, the first volume, which I'm not talking about tonight, the first volume opens up with Bismarck's unification of Germany. This creates a new power on the continent, which uh, deeply alters the balance of power. And the German state, as you know, on, uh, after 1870-71, goes on to a fantastic industrialization spurt and becomes better than the British at certain high-end industrial manufacturing processes. The other piece, the other eruption, is the Meiji Restoration in Japan. Unlike the German case, this is not the creation of a new state, but this is the consolidation of a centralized state which, as in the German case, goes on to this fantastic industrial story and is clearly now in the ranks of the first powers, major power in the world, which Japan wasn't uh, prior to the Meiji Restoration. So these two eruptions in the British-dominated world create very significant challenges for British power. Because British power is global, it has aspirations to be a uh, uh, major power, not just in its neighborhood, but also throughout East Asia. And it's worried, as I said, about the balance of power on the European continent. So the German and Japanese story are things the British um, uh, feel they need to confront in some fashion. There is a piece I'm leaving out, which is the uh, trajectory of the United States after the victory of the North in the Civil War. This destroys the uh, slave-based economy of the South for the most part, which was far richer than the North and opens the way to a railroad-driven industrial manufacturing model for the U.S., which is the model that's going to spread across the continent. And this is going to be the largest economy in the world, at least by the 1890s, but not yet a major arbiter of the international system. Uh, global trade is a small percentage of U.S. GDP, maybe 5% in 1900. Uh, even though the U.S. is the biggest economy. The U.S. has this huge continental market and is able to aggrandize predominantly without interacting in a big way uh, with the rest of the world. There are important episodes that you'll know about, uh, Philippines and other things, but nonetheless, these are not the dominant. The dominant thing is the U.S. is not significantly uh, trying to manage or interfere in uh, global affairs the way it will later on. So they're looming, the U.S. power is looming over the international system. Uh, already by 1916, the U.S. begins to build a navy, uh, both for the Atlantic and the Pacific simultaneously, which tells you just how powerful this looming uh, U.S. presence is going to be, the idea of building that navy to compete on both sides of the world. Anyway, but for right now, it's a story of a British-dominated world uh, which will eventually give way to the United States, and then this eruption of German power and eruption of Japanese power. This is especially salient for Russia, uh, because Russia obviously is flanked by Germany and Japan. So to the extent that Russia has aspirations to be a great power itself, as well as security challenges, it's now much uh, a great, the challenges are now much greater because of the German and Japanese stories, one on either side. Of Russia. So that's just by way of introduction. Sort of forgive me how simplified that is. There's a lot I'm leaving out. You know, that's a kind of a geopolitics 101 in its most simplified fashion. Uh, there's a lot of more nuance that's necessary. There are a lot of other pieces that I need to introduce in that. I need to talk about global political economy, commodity prices, who's feeding the world, uh, where the minerals are being extracted from. There's a whole lot of other stuff that I just don't have time to fill in, but could fill in if this were, for example, the entire year or semester course where I normally give uh, these kind of lectures. Okay. So now let's bring in 
uh, I'm, I'm setting up for this Stalin and geopolitics stuff. Now let's bring in a, another piece. Another piece is uh, World War I. And as you know, uh, uh, Germany, Austria, Hungary, eventually Turkey, so-called central powers, Ottoman, I'm sorry, Ottoman Empire, not Turkey, Ottoman Empire, versus uh, Britain, France, Russia, and eventually the United States, right? And uh, uh, the Germans win the war on the Eastern Front. In March 1918, they signed the Brest-Litovsk Treaty, which just this month is having its 100th anniversary. German victory on the Eastern Front. The Germans, however, lose the war on the Western Front, coming within 37 miles of Paris. They're unable to finish the job on the Western Front, as a result of which the Brest-Litovsk Treaty is repudiated. In any case, then, there is the Versailles Peace Treaty of 1919. You're all familiar with the Versailles Peace of 1919. And that treaty is about, uh, is um, a subject to tremendous criticism. You can almost never find anybody who's going to defend the Versailles Peace. And there are two arguments against the Versailles Peace. One argument is that it uh, was a punitive peace, singled out Germany as the only culprit for World War I, blamed everything, in other words, on Germany, and then made Germany pay reparations. This excessively punitive quality to the peace then contributed to the destabilization of the Weimar Republic, the rise of Hitler, Nazism, and World War II. It's a very powerful critique. It's very widely shared. There's another critique of the Versailles Treaty, uh, which is less widely shared, which is about how, this is more a conservative critique, which is more about how the British and the French shrank from uh, imposing the treaty. In other words, if the British and the French just had more resolve, more willpower to uphold the treaty, there wouldn't have been this World War II. They would have cut that off uh, before it happened. And so the blame is on the... Uh, uh, not uh, the, the, the peace treaty being too punitive, but the failure to enforce it. So my argument is that both of these views of the Versailles Treaty are wrong. And the reason I argue that is because the Versailles Treaty was an anomaly. It happened in 1919 only because this was the only time since Bismarck's unification of Germany where both German power and Russian power were flat on their back. You could predict confidently that either Germany or Russia would rise again to be a great power. And in fact, both of them rose again to be great powers within a single generation. And so the Versailles Peace Treaty could not have been enforced no matter what. It could only have been imposed at that moment and could not be imposed again or enforced later on. Okay. Uh, we have something like that with the 1991 uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union. There was a post-1991 settlement which was imposed, imposed on Russia. Uh, Russia could do nothing about that settlement in 1991, uh, but it can do something about that settlement now. Right? Okay. So anyway, the Versailles Treaty. So now let's move to the period in between World War I and World War II where we have a British-dominated world, the rise of German power and Japanese power. This has led to this Anglo-German antagonism, which has helped produce World War I. The Japanese are really not major participants in World War I, not in the battle sense, but they are participants in the sense of benefiting from the new geopolitical order. In any case, now we enter the interwar period. And the most remarkable thing about the interwar period, I'm going to talk about British geopolitics and Soviet geopolitics, and then bring the Hitler-Stalin peace after that. Well, the most remarkable thing about British policy is that the British began to revise the Versailles Treaty themselves almost immediately. If you know the Genoa Conference from 1922, Genoa was already an attempt to alter the terms of Versailles, to bring the Germans back into a settlement Right? Remember, the Versailles Peace Treaty was imposed on the Germans, dictated to them, and excluded Russia, now Soviet Russia. They weren't even invited to the table. And so the 1922 Genoa Conference was this attempt, 
you can argue that it was cynical, it was only partial, it, it was confused, it was poorly executed. But nonetheless, it shows a recognition on the British side that the Versailles order was not itself stable. And they needed to have an order where Germany was actually on the inside rather than a pariah state. And in fact, another goal of Genoa was maybe even to feel out Soviet Russia to see if they could be included and further stabilize the, the order after World War I. What happened instead was that Germany and Soviet Russia cut a deal on the sidelines of Genoa at a place called Rapallo. If you know your Italian geography, it's not that far from Genoa. That's in fact where the German delegation was based. And so just outside of Rapallo. And so they cut this deal as the two pariah states against Versailles. But the British didn't cease attempting to revise the Versailles Treaty. The entire interwar period, the British attempted to get to a better place, to get to a settlement that involved Germany accepting the peace or the settlement in a way that they wouldn't try to revise, break it, etc. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll finish that thought. I want to just break now to the Soviet version of this and then show you uh, their interaction. So these are arguments in, uh, in the book. Um, on the Soviet side, uh, we have a poor understanding, in my view, of Soviet geopolitics. Well, Soviet geopolitics was as followed. And how do, we, how do we know this? Because Stalin wrote in December 1924, uh, sort of published in um, uh, January 1925, an article called Socialism in One Country. You've probably heard the slogan, Socialism in One Country, and you've heard it because Trotsky denounced the slogan of socialism in one country two years after Stalin first published it. And Trotsky uh, mischaracterized, tendentiously mischaracterized Stalin's argument. And then Trotsky's version of Stalin's argument has entered into the literature. The, the argument of socialism in one country was, should we build socialism in one country now? given that the world revolution hasn't happened yet? Or should we surrender to the capitalists and give up the attempt to build socialism in one country? And the answer is that it was obvious. It was a rhetorical question. The answer was, of course, we should build socialism in the one country in which it's happened. In fact, Lenin had said this himself before he died in January 1924. And Trotsky is on paper saying the same thing. Who would surrender and give up the revolution? The world revolution hasn't happened yet. Should we surrender? No. Let's build socialism in one country first or now as we wait or try to instigate the world revolution. So uh, Trotsky then, uh, two years later, there was um, a fiasco over China policy where Chiang Kai-shek began to murder communists in the United Front, which humiliated Stalin. Uh, this is in volume one of, of my Stalin book. In any case, I'll skip that, but the upshot of that was Trotsky then began to dredge up all the tools he could use against Stalin. Stalin had many more tools than Trotsky had at his command. Stalin had censorship and control over the public sphere. Stalin was a master at the smear and the tendentious mischaracterization of others' arguments. So it's kind of ironic that Trotsky is using this against Stalin and uh, that we now have this perverted notion of socialism in one country. That's not why this is important, however. Why I think this is important is because Stalin laid out a theory of Soviet geopolitics in the same little article. It was a preface, actually, to, to other stuff. And what he said was, it wasn't just class struggle that produced socialist revolution. It was also imperialist war. And without the special imperialist war factor, you might not have got socialist revolution in the Russian case. And so therefore, Soviet geopolitics or Soviet foreign policy is as follows. Prevent the capitalists from forming a coalition and ganging up on us. And instead, try to instigate them fighting each other. And if they would fight each other, they might destroy each other 
and socialist revolution might happen in the capitalist world, while we, the socialists in one country, would be protected. So anything we could do to prevent an anti-Soviet, all-capitalist, or what Stalin called all-imperialist coalition. This is a simple idea, and he held to this idea uh, throughout the 1930s. This is the governing idea of Soviet geopolitics. Uh, we have multiple evidence about how uh, Stalin understands this theory and how he elaborates this theory over time, sticking to the fundamentals. So this meant that if the British goal was to bring the Germans in to stabilize the Versailles order, the Soviet goal was to keep the Germans out as pariahs. So as to prevent, in the Soviet mind, all the Versailles powers, all those imperialists getting together and attacking the Soviets. So there's a kind of contest for Germany's attention. The British want Germany, not because they want to attack and destroy the Soviet Union, but they're afraid of Germany being outside the system, destabilizing the Versailles order and potentially overturning it. The Soviets, as they say, Stalin articulated this, uh, the Foreign Affairs Commissar Georgi Chicherin uh, articulated this, Maxim Litvinov articulated the same theory. It's throughout the uh, Soviet documentation. Soviet documentation are saturated with this. Okay. And so from the Soviet side, trying to, like that Rapallo Treaty, trying to bring the Germans over to their side, not necessarily because, or not only because the Germans and the Soviets might have things in common, like trade, or a deep economic relationship, but just to prevent Germany, France, and Britain all ganging up, all forming one side. All right. So lo and behold, Hitler comes to power in January 1933. This is a big story. We're going to skip the, the reasons for that story today, but we can discuss those in the Q&A if you're interested, because Stalin makes an unwitting contribution uh, to the rise of Hitler. He's not predominantly responsible by any stretch of the imagination, but he makes his contribution. In any case, the rise of Hitler the rise of Nazism, the Nazi regime, does not alter either British geopolitics or Soviet geopolitics. The British continue the same policy under different governments of trying to make a deal with the Germans and keep the Germans inside the order. This leads, as you know, to the infamous Munich Pact in 1938, but it's a continuous policy that you can see in Genoa in 1922. Once again, it's not identical because the, you know, Lloyd George and Neville Chamberlain are different people, different parties, right? There are important nuances here. But in, in general terms, even the rise of Hitler doesn't fundamentally alter British geopolitics in the interwar period. Moreover, from the Soviet side, that's also true. The rise of Hitler, a Nazi regime proclaiming itself, right, as the scourge of, quote, Judeo-Bolshevism, Jewish Bolshevism, proclaiming itself as wanting living space to take away the territory and the livelihoods of Slavs living to the east of Germany, proclaiming all of this, and yet Soviet geopolitics remains to try to do a deal with Germany to prevent an all-imperialist coalition ganging up on the Soviets. This is breathtaking, because on the one hand, the British, who are a parliamentary system, are trying to get in bed with the Nazis. And on the other hand, the Soviet Union, which is communism and completely antagonistic to the Nazi regime and vice versa, are trying to get in bed with Nazism. But from a geopolitical standpoint, it does have a logic. And it is continuous with this problem of Versailles, as I've set it down, Right, uh, the 1919 being a moment in time, an anomaly that was not going to last and wouldn't repeat. Okay, so if you've, I think we're we're okay on time. Just let me check here. I'm not good sometimes when there's no clock in the room. All right, we started at around 6:40, you said, and it's 7:07. So I'm going to do a little bit more before the Q and A, if that's all right. Okay. So there's great drama. 
This is fantastic drama, this story. There are bigger pieces I'm leaving out here. Now we have the Japanese case, right, which I haven't talked much about. As you know, Japan seizes those northeastern provinces of China that used to be called Manchuria and creates a puppet state, Manchukuo. This happens, the seizure happens in fall 1931, and Manchukuo is formed in early spring 1932. This changes, fundamentally changes the balance of power in East Asia. And the Soviet Stalin begins an express a militarization of his economy, which David Stone has, has proven in his magnificent book um, on the first five-year plan, that the Soviet economy was already geared up to be able to produce the industrial base Right, that undergirded a military-industrial complex, but now Stalin begins to build an express military-industrial complex, and, and he's goaded uh, by the Japanese uh, seizure of Manchuria and creation of the puppet state Manchukuo. So I've left that out, but that's a really big piece, because in the anti-Soviet all-imperialist coalition, you've got to also keep the Japanese out of that coalition. Right? And the British are stretched and unable necessarily to protect their possessions in Asia. And so the British are trying to do a deal with Japan in a kind of split the responsibilities for Asia with Japan. And so this is an, another interesting wrinkle. Once again, it would be necessary to go into further detail about this in order to flesh it all out. I'm leaving out the Spanish Civil War and all the mythologies about the Spanish Civil War. I'm leaving out uh, Chiang Kai-shek and the communists in China. Also another important contributing factor at the forefront of decision-making. And uh, all elaborated at length in the book with the primary documents and available for a Q&A. But I just want to do this Hitler-Stalin pact and then the invasion, the onset of the invasion in the little time that I've got left, since that's what I've set up. All right. Now, so... It's not a shock that Stalin is trying to do a deal with Hitler. Because once again, the British are trying to do the same thing. So you actually have a kind of Neville Chamberlain, Joseph Stalin competition for Hitler's favor and attention. We make fun of Chamberlain. He's the easiest person in the world to mock. First of all, he's a Tory. That is to say he's conservative. So there's all the material you need right there. Secondly, he has a giant beak nose. He's got that ridiculous top hat that they wore in Britain in the old days. And he's got that uh, umbrella, right, which he uses as a cane as he walks. And then he comes back from handing over Czechoslovakia Sudetenland for free with no compensation to Hitler, handing it to Hitler on a silver platter. And he comes back from that and says, we've now achieved peace in our time. Right? So that's immortal. You can't wipe that away. That's a stain. You know, Trump isn't there yet. That's how big that stain is of Chamberlain. But here's the interesting thing about Chamberlain. Of all the mistakes he made, of all the oversights and stupidities and opportunities he missed, he, he had this to say in 1938-39. His critics were saying, you know, we need to do a deal with the Soviet Union to combat this guy Hitler and defeat him in a war. That's what Chamberlain's critics were arguing was a better policy than trying to do a deal with Hitler, come to an understanding, a policy uh, known as appeasement, which has become an infamous word, but wasn't an infamous word back then. And so the opposite of Chamberlain's policy of appeasement, of doing the deal, was do the deal with Stalin and crush Hitler. And Chamberlain said, fine, to his critics, fine. If I do that, explain this to me. If we, if we do that and we win, we're successful, which would be the aim. How do I then get communism out of Central Europe? That's Chamberlain, 1938-39. And you've got to say to yourself, yeah, that's a really good question. In fact, that's called the Cold War. And if you were alive during the Cold War, you know it was serious business. So Chamberlain may have been an nincompoop, and we may make fun of him uh, as much as we want, uh, but there was a fundamental dilemma here, uh, which Chamberlain at least understood and his critics didn't. And so, okay, now let's move to the Stalin-Hitler piece. Uh, so in, um, 
in all the dealings where Stalin is trying to get Hitler's attention, uh, Hitler is uh, not interested, really. Hitler's uh, economists, his economic ministers are interested because they're seeing the buildup of German power and they need raw materials, they need grain, they need oil, they need minerals, manganese and bauxite, and you name it, like the whole periodic table. And the Soviet Union's got all that. And moreover, the Soviets are thirsty for high-end manufacturing, precision engineering goods, as well as armaments. And Germany is state-of-the-art on that kind of stuff. Not always as good as Britain and France in, for example, aircraft manufacture, but still pretty good. And so there's sort of mutual, uh, mutually beneficial trade possible between the two countries. So there's economic team, Hitler's economic team is interested in these feelers from the Soviet Union. And moreover, there are some Anglophobes in Hitler's inner circle who also hate Germany, hate England so much that they would even prefer a deal with the Judeo-Bolsheviks. But Hitler himself is not very interested. But all of a sudden, after all Stalin's feelers, Stalin has killed a lot of the people he had uh, uh, um, extend the feelers by now. All of a sudden, in July 1939, Hitler's interested. And the reason is, is because he's given the order to attack Poland, to invade and destroy Poland. And, and the British and the French finally have publicly stated that they will defend Poland's sovereignty. And so they'll declare war on Germany if Germany invades Poland. Uh, Hitler is not quite sure if the British and the French are for real on this. Do they mean it? Uh, but nonetheless, it's a gamble. Because if the Soviets join with the British and the French, the Germans now have the problem of the two-front war that they lost in World War I. So all of a sudden, with the war plans already uh, green-lighted and the invasion date already set for Poland, Hitler decides that the feelers from Stalin, he's now going to respond to. This is July 1939. Before July 1939, Stalin's got nothing, almost no response. The responses from Germany are contradictory because, as I say, parts of the bureaucracy are interested, but Hitler himself is against it. So the bureaucracy uh, engages in a couple of talks here and there with Soviet representatives. Hitler finds out and cuts the talks off. All right. But now all of a sudden it's Hitler who's the motivator, who's the driver of this. And so Stalin, who is privy to Hitler's attack plans of Poland because of the Soviet spy network, and understands uh, 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 that Hitler now has a timetable and, uh, for the attack and, and doesn't want to change the timetable and therefore doesn't have a lot of leverage, Stalin plays it slow. Oh, really? Now you're interested? Well, I'm going to play hard to get. Right? If you've done any negotiations in business or in, uh, for marriage or whatever, you understand how these things work. And it's a, we understand how one side tries to use leverage. These are the other, right? Okay, so Hitler has handed leverage to Stalin. That's what he's done. So Stalin plays it slow. Uh, Hitler then be begins to get very agitated. I need a deal. I need a deal. I mean, the invasion of Poland is coming up. It's set for late August. It's now early August. It's now mid-August. So Hitler uh, um, asks Stalin if he would receive uh, his foreign minister Nazi foreign minister Joachim von Ribbentrop in, in Moscow. And finally, Stalin agrees, yes, and so the meeting takes place in late August 1939, and the invasion of Poland is put off for a little, little bit of time, like a week. So von Ribbentrop is now coming to the Soviet Union to negotiate a non-aggression pact uh, with the Soviets in order to keep the Soviets out of a potential war with the British and the French, against Germany, over Poland. And if the Soviets are out, maybe the British and French won't have the resolve to take Hitler on. So maybe he'll get Poland and the British and the French will just be bluffing. So it looks, looks like a deal for Hitler too. Anyway, so uh, um, Stalin tells almost nobody that this is going on. The whole thing is a secret. He's a conspirator and he's conspiring uh, this deal with Hitler. And uh, so they're, they're at the dacha. Uh, where they gathered in the evening, as you know, if you've seen the films. And um, there's this little guy who's a protege of Stalin, uh, fantastically loyal, uh, 
worships Stalin. Stalin has a perverse sense of humor, however, so he says to this guy whose name was Nikita Khrushchev, he says, he says Mikita, which is what he called him because that's the Ukrainian version of Nikita. It's a, a condescending way to say Khrushchev's name because Khrushchev is not ethnic Ukrainian, just happened to me. Party boss there. Anyway, he says to Mikita, a, a, a Ribbentrop is coming uh, to Moscow uh, tomorrow. And Khrushchev, with the Stalin per, uh, perverse sense of humor, you know, ha, ha, ha. And maybe he's going to defect, right? And Stalin says, no, actually, Ribbentrop is coming here to Moscow tomorrow. And Khrushchev doesn't say anything more because he doesn't know if Stalin is joking or testing Khrushchev's loyalty or whatever it might be. But there's a very narrow circle in which this is revealed. So Ribbentrop flies on Hitler's personal plane, known as a Condor, actually two planes because of the entourage, and they, they're crossing the Soviet border, and of course Stalin hasn't told the Soviet border guards. And so as Ribbentrop flying on Hitler's plane, which is obviously not registered with the Soviet border guards, and is clearly a, 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 not a Soviet plane, even if you can't read the markings on it, it's, uh, the Soviets don't make Condors like the, the, the plane that Ribbentrop is on. So Soviet anti-aircraft fires at the plane. Yes, it fires at the plane. And it misses. It missed the plane. And so Ribbentrop continued on his way, and he landed safely in Moscow. Let's think about this for a second. Let's think about if Soviet anti-aircraft had hit the plane. Stalin says to Ribbentrop, I'm, uh, to, to Hitler, I'm so sorry I killed Ribbentrop. It was an accident. I forgot to tell the border guards. And Hitler's going to believe this, right? He's going to assume that Stalin is telling the truth and hadn't set him up in order to murder his foreign minister. Right? I don't think so. Uh, how do you explain that it was an accident? Anyway, so this is, this is the way history works, right? There are all these contingencies and accidents built into the bigger structures. So then Ribbentrop lands in Moscow. And they do this deal, and Stalin dictates the terms of the deal. He changes some of the terms. Hitler is called on the phone. Hitler agrees to the changes, and the deal is wrapped up very, very quickly. And uh, Ribbentrop, um, uh, uh, Hitler has sent his personal photographer. So there are photographs from uh, the Soviet side and from the German side, and Hitler sent his personal photographer because he asked him to photograph Stalin's earlobes to see if Stalin had Aryan blood or not. Yeah, so this is this regime, this gigantic regime of German power run by this guy. And so they do the deal, and the deal consists in, I mean, you know the deal, it consists in a non-aggression pact, a deep economic exchange, and then spheres of influence in a so-called secret protocol. And the Germans are now going to invade Poland, which takes place September 1st, 1939. And then the Soviets are going to get a, a chunk of Poland. Germans are going to get Western Poland. The Soviets are going to get Eastern Poland. That's the deal. Meanwhile, we have this notion that Stalin trusted nobody, but he trusted Hitler. So now we're going to work through that. So Hitler invades September 1st, 1939. And Stalin doesn't know how this is going to go. Poland has an army. Poland has an air force. Britain and France might declare war. They do declare war. They might, I don't know, send troops or start bombing Germany. So Stalin's kind of waiting to see what happens. He's hanging out. And Ribbentrop says, well, where's the Soviet invasion of Poland from the east? How come that's not happening? Not because the Germans need the Soviets to destroy, help destroy Poland, but because Ribbentrop is trying to drive the wedge deeper between the British and the French and the Soviets. God forbid the British and the French now should do their own deal with the Soviets and Stalin should go back on his word with Ribbentrop and now be incorporated into a, an alliance against Germany, right? So get the Soviets in there to make the breach between Britain and France on the one side and the Soviets deeper. So Stalin is stalling. He's fighting a war with Japan at the time. There is a gigantic border war underway in the Far East. And this border war is going very well for the Soviets, but nonetheless, Stalin is at war with Japan. So there's an order for the Soviets to go into Poland, September 12th. It doesn't happen. The order is not um, implemented. That is to say, it's written, it's drafted, but it's not uh, signed 
and set and, and execute it. Another order two days later, and so clearly they were thinking about when they should go in. So finally, September 17th, the Red Army goes into eastern Poland. By now, Poland has been overrun in the West by the Germans, and the British and the French have declared war but done nothing so far. Moreover, the day before, Stalin has signed a truce with the Japanese. The day after the truce, he then sends the army in uh, to uh, Poland. So let's think about this, right? So for a time, both the German army and the Japanese army were in motion towards the Soviet border. Okay. Now, uh, they've drawn this line on a map down Poland, which uh, is, you know, each sphere, German sphere and Soviet sphere. But lo and behold, a couple of days after the Soviets go in, September 18th, 19th, 20th, the Germans are on Stalin's side of the line. Yeah, that's right. The Wehrmacht is, hasn't stopped where Stalin and Ribbentrop agreed, but is on the other side of the line. Moreover, Stalin sends a minion into Berlin to meet with uh, uh, German military intelligence, and when the minion shows up, on the table is this huge map which shows the dislocation of forces in Poland and, and shows that the Germans know that they're on Stalin's side of the line. You know, they have the little stick pins, if you know those old-style maps, right, showing where the tanks and the artillery and the planes are. So imagine Stalin's thinking, right? The Germans know his minion is coming, so if they don't want the minion to see this, they can fold up the map and kind of put it in the drawer. Or they can receive him in another room where there is no map. But they happen to receive him in the room with the map, and the map happened to show that the Wehrmacht had violated the agreement. So Stalin calls in the German military attaché in Moscow, uh, Lieutenant General Ernst Kirstein, who is a fluent Russian speaker. And he says to him, You're on, uh, you guys are on my side of the line. And the lieutenant general says, yes, but that's, it's only temporary. You see, what's happening is we're killing the Poles. And the Poles are fleeing. And as they flee, we're chasing them. And so in order to kill them, we had to cross the line. But as soon as we kill them, we're going to go back to our side of the line. Everything is cool. So think about this. Stalin has a piece of paper with a line drawn on it, signed by this guy Ribbentrop, who in an earlier life was a champagne salesman, and is now the Nazi foreign minister. Moreover, before they've gone into the negotiations, Stalin has ordered up a dossier. He's ordered up a dossier of writings. Stalin is a very document-focused person. That's how he prepares things. He's ordered up a dossier. He got a translation of Mein Kampf from German into Russian. Not published, but just for his purposes. He has all his own minions in his regime read this Mein Kampf translation. Khrushchev says he couldn't get, barely get through it. That, and that's in part because he was not literate. But it also could be because he was offended. There are these passages which say, for example, uh, uh, um, Slavic subhumans. There are underlines in Stalin's colored pencil on the Slavic subhumans. There's this passage called March, uh, Drive to the East, Rang nach Osten, underlines under those passages. So it's pretty clear. Stalin's read Mein Kampf, and he's underlined those passages which are directed, you know, threats directed at him from Hitler. So could he really be trusting or fooled? Moreover, there's other stuff in the dossier. There's a biography of Hitler by Konrad Haydn, written in um, uh, Swiss emigration, an excellent biography. There are other documents about how Hitler, uh, other uh, analyses of Hitler in German, translated into Russian for Stalin, about how Hitler signs all these deals and he never keeps his word. Check mark. So this is the Hitler he knows. He's got this piece of paper with the border, and the Wehrmacht is on the other side of the line. So there's your trust. No guarantee that the Germans will stop at the line that they drew. No guarantee that the Germans will stop at the, Soviet, the Polish-Soviet border. Maybe the whole pact itself was a ruse to sucker Stalin in. And maybe the Germans are going to bash him too. I mean, how do you know? So Stalin says to Lieutenant General Ernst Kirstring, he says to him, you know, uh, we're going to go in and we're going to take the territory that's on our side of the line by force. 
And the lieutenant general says, you, you can't do that. We don't need to do that. So we're going to just let us finish and we'll evacuate and then we'll hand it over. And so Stalin says, dismissed. So several hours later, the Red Army goes in to the province and the German army, the Wehrmacht and the Red Army, uh, clash. They have a military clash in Poland around the city of Lvov, Lviv, Lvov, Lemberg, which is the same city. It just has these many names in Polish, uh, Ukrainian, uh, Russian, uh, German, and Yiddish. And so the, the, there are casualties on both sides. And the Germans are uh, evicted. And in the middle of it, Hitler is informed. He's in Poland himself, adding to the drama. He's in Zopot, which is on the Baltic Sea. It's a little resort outside of uh, Gdansk. It's now been absorbed into that Gdansk-Gdynia complex. He's in Zopot, Zopot. And so um, Hitler then gives the order that they should withdraw. But as they're withdrawing, the, the Wehrmacht continues to fire, and there are further casualties. So this area, by the way, that was on Stalin's side, and that he's take, retaken by force with casualties, uh, these are the uh, Drohobich oil fields. And so is it a coincidence in Stalin's mind that the Germans would take those old oil fields on his side of the line, or was it something they did on purpose? Anyway, so this is the way we understand this pact uh, with, with um, the, the, the actual nature of the regimes and the mentalities. Now, you can argue that uh, we don't know for sure on some of these questions, and I would agree with you. Some of these questions we don't have full documentation on. But nonetheless, we have pretty good documentation uh, on most of the stuff that I'm outlining for you. So let me conclude. I'm just about there. I think I'm like, I have one minute left of time or two minutes left of time. So, uh, what has this meant? What have I been trying to say? What's my point, if any? We have to do a version of history which takes into account these larger structures, right? For example, German power, Russian power, British power, the nature of that power, the institutions of that power, the ideas that drive that, right? And then we have certain actors who, by various circumstances, come to power and are decision makers within big things like German power or Russian power or British power. And so that's kind of my argument of how history works. History is this big structural landscape, a gigantic structural landscape, which is determined by very big structures. And as I said, everything from state-to-state relations to global commodity prices to the productivity of your peasantry to you name it, you fill in the blank. And within that structural landscape, historical actors right, perceive or fail to perceive opportunities. They see or don't see places that they can seize opportunities that they can seize to try to affect that structural landscape. Most of those opportunities are not created by them. They're created by accident, circumstance, contingencies, things that they don't foresee. And so historical agency is about opportunities that you don't create, that you don't foresee, but that you perceive in real time and you try to bend to your will. And if you succeed in seizing such an opportunity, if you manage to do something like that, you, ch you can alter the structural landscape for others. Because the structural landscape is a system, and it has system effects, including unintended consequences. You know, knock this, and something falls over there, even though you knocked it this way, because they're interrelated. They're connected in some systemic fashion. So sometimes the actors don't understand this, and they, they miscalculate, they misperceive, they fail to see the opportunities, or they see opportunities that they're delusions, they delude themselves. Sometimes they, don't, they overestimate their power, they overestimate their legitimacy, they overestimate the nature of their society, whatever it might be. So this process of connection between these big forces, 
or the structures, and then this individual agency, right? This is the challenge of all the history that we write. And some of the agents can be uh, people who make decisions about uh, global commodity prices, right? They can sit there in London at a commodities market and make a big bet, and it can affect the lives of coffee growers all throughout South America who have no idea who this person in London is. They've never met this person. They never will meet this person. But this person has tremendous influence on the lives of these people. Similarly, the coffee growers themselves can adopt or fail to adopt certain ways of growing the coffee, which can have tremendous consequences for the size of the crop that particular year or for even the nature of the, uh, of the crop itself. Anyway, so this challenge, which I feel heavy burden of connecting the structures and the individual agency, when you write a biography of somebody, uh, normally you just assume they can do what they want and that they're the cause or the motivator behind everything. Right? You see this with Churchill biographies. You see this with George Washington or Abraham Lincoln biographies. Right? They're in every sentence. They're on uh, every page. They're the subject of every sentence. They're the main actor. Whatever they do, it then happens. Right? This is a conceit of biography. And then you see kind of foreign policy history, which is all the big structural forces that are too big for any one individual, and there are no, there are no people. It's devoid of people. Right? And you can't see how the individuals interact with that. And so I, I, this is maybe banal, but then again, that wouldn't be the first time. But this challenge of relating the structural forces to the agency can be done in these episodes. And in these episodes, you can see that people, whether they perceive or misperceive these opportunities, whether they seize them, whether they turn them to advantage, whether in fact it's their short-term gain and long-term miscalculation, and then how this ripples, how the consequences of power and decision-making ripples through the system, and then how the system ripples back onto the decision maker for the next series of mistakes or miscalculations or seizure of opportunities. Anyway, thank you for your attention. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.